Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies with history. Today, we're going to be learning about the first director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, as his life was depicted in the 2011 biopic directed by Clint Eastwood, simply called J. Edgar. And joining us to help us separate fact from fiction is Paul Latursky. Paul is a retired FBI agent who worked as J. Edgar Hoover's personal assistant, and he's the author of a new book that just came out called The Director, My Years Assisting J. Edgar Hoover. Before we connect with Paul, though, it's time to set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. Now, if you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, and that means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one. Clyde Tolson found Hoover on the floor of his home soon after his death. Number two, the eight bombs we see go off in D.C. at the beginning of the movie actually went off in seven different cities. Number three, Hoover really did live with his mother for 43 years. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and by a simple process of elimination, you'll be able to find out which one is a lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, now it's time to chat with Paul Letursky about the historical accuracy of J. Edgar. Before we get into the details, as someone who worked closely with J. Edgar Hoover, how do you feel the movie did capturing the overall essence of him as a person? Very poorly. That's kind of a harsh and quick answer. But I'll tell you, there was so much distortion in that movie, so much speculation that nobody knows. And I had a problem following the segues between different eras. They'd be driving a car in 1930. The next thing I know, Hoover's talking to Bobby Kennedy as attorney general. You know, that was in the 1960s. So there's a 30-year gap. And I know a lot of movies. And even in my book, I start off with Hoover's funeral. But then I go back to everything. So I understand how you have to get this historic perspective. But I had a hard time following, you know, where was I? Other than that, Hoover as a person? To me, and you have to understand that my book is not another Hoover biography. It's my memoir showing how he was known to me. He was a very complex man, and very few people really knew. Nobody knew what he was really like. Maybe Helen Gandy and Clyde Tolson. But other than that, all I know is what I know from when I was working in the FBI. And so I took... That segment for my first book was my FBI experience, uh, which was an eight-year experience. And two of those years, I was an assistant to uh, Hoover. And I found them to be strict, disciplined. Everything was formal with him, Dan. And all the rules were his rules. And he never called me anything more or other than Mr. Latursky unless he was feeling good about me and writing me that I did something nice, he would just say Latursky. But if it's business, it's, I was, I was a 23 year old snot nosed kid going to law school at night uh, when I was working for him. So you can imagine he was 70 years old 
But still, he called me Mr. Litursky every day. That leads my segue into one of your main questions uh, was the relationship between Hoover and Gandhi. The fact that he called me Mr. Litursky on a daily basis, I went to Miss Gandhi. Oh, I was probably working for, for him for only about two months. And I said, Miss Gandhi, I said, it really bothers me that Mr. Hoover calls me Mr. Litursky. I wish he would call me by my first name. Or on a Monday morning, maybe when I come in, he'd say, hey, Paul, how does your weekend go? And she said, hey, don't feel badly about that. I've been working with him for more than 50 years, and he's never called me Helen. You asked that question, and that happens to be the truth, and there was no reason for her to tell me anything different. She just said, don't worry about it. He, he, he's never called me Helen. Just the way he was, very formal. Very formal, yeah. The way the movie starts, it shows some events leading up to the forming of the Bureau of Investigation. And there's a series of bombings that go off. Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer was Hoover's boss at the Justice Department in 1919. And then there's, I think it says, eight different bombs that go off across Washington, D.C. And one of those that the movie really shows is at Palmer's house. Fortunately, nobody seems to be physically hurt. But... The police work at the time is sloppy, to say the least. And then on top of that, uh, Palmer has certified, who I assume from the context of the movie are the bombing suspects to be deported. And then the Department of Labor refuses to do so without more evidence, which is tough because the police work is so sloppy, the standards at that time. So as the movie explains it, that's kind of the reason behind why Palmer puts Hoover in charge of this new division of the Justice Department to get better evidence against these known communist radicals, as the movie describes them. And then in the end, the movie says that Hoover's agents managed to arrest nearly 4,000 communist radicals around the country and deport over 500 of them, and they solved the bombings in that case. How accurate was the movie's depiction of this first major investigation that we see? In parts, very accurately. In other parts, took a liberal Hollywood license. You mentioned eight bombs around the D.C. area. Those bombs went off in actually seven different cities. And probably the one that gained more publicity was the explosion on Wall Street, because these anarchists, that was the sign of capitalism, Wall Street. I was surprised. I thought, hey, listen, I love uh, Clint Eastwood. I think he was a great actor and a great director and everything. And I guess that's why I was a bit disappointed in this. And if I were writing that script, I would concentrate more on the Wall Street explosions than the one in Washington. Yeah, you make a great point that that's a symbol of capitalism. So that would be a, a natural target. Right. And, uh, you know, some people just hated Palmer. And I guess for a lot of good reasons. But he was a Quaker. I don't know if you knew that or not. And so he he objected to a lot of violence. And Woodrow Wilson wanted him to be Assistant Secretary of War. And because of his Quaker religion, he declined to take that position. And that's why the Palmer Raids is kind of surprising that he would go along with that. Oh, okay. So then what was the was the the way the movie showed Palmer putting Hoover in charge of that investigation? Was that I get the impression it was Hoover's first chance to lead in a, a big investigation like that. Yeah, it was because this is 1919, and I think he was like 24 years old at the time. So he had two big investigations going on at that time. One was with the uh, Osage American Indian 
indigenous tribes, which was a big corruption by the Department of Interior taking money from the Osage Indians. And it occurred at the same time as this. So he had he had two things going on. I'm sorry I deviated from the movie. I, I keep telling myself, stay within the movie. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. I mean, that's, that, that's another aspect of, you know, it, it's nice to hear some of this context that they don't put in the movie <laughs> um, because all of that plays into the real history. And I know they only have two hours to cram all these things in. But there was so much distortion and untruths throughout the movie that they could have found other aspects. But it depends on what they wanted to show, you know, how they wanted to portray him. The question about the bombings and the police work, I'm not too sure that the police didn't do a better job than the movie showed. And the reason I'm saying that is that the director of the Bureau of Investigation at the time was a guy by the name of William Flynn, F-L-Y-N-N. He had a program of training for bomb threats and bomb explosions and what you're supposed to do. So to have the police deviate so much from William Flynn's policies and training manuals, I'm just not sure. I don't, I'm not sure if the police were as incompetent as the movie shows. Would the training have gone from the federal level to that like that to the, the police? Because in the movie, I, I the impression that I got was the local police almost had their own set of standards. And then the Justice Department you know, on, the, on the federal side had its set of standards. And they would, weren't necessarily the same. And you're absolutely right there. But at the time, the Bureau of Investigation, their agents had no power of arrest. And so if they're investigating somebody and an arrest was imminent, They'd have to get the local police or the U.S. Marshals to make the arrest. They couldn't make the arrest. And so they did work closely with the police departments if it, for anything but that fact. Okay, yeah, I, I wasn't aware that they wouldn't have that power. <laughs> they only had a few things that they had jurisdiction for investigating. Indian reservations, other government reservations, uh, some frauds, but very, very little jurisdiction. And only to investigate. Well, according to the movie, after the the bombings and that that gets solved, we see that Palmer loses his job due to some political adversaries, and then Harlan Stone becomes the new attorney general. And even though Hoover had led the raids, he was just following orders, so he gets to keep his job. He doesn't get caught up in the political aftermath of that. But then this leads to Stone appointing Hoover as the acting director of the uh, Bureau of Investigation. And Hoover accepts the job on a few conditions, one of them being the separation of the Bureau from politics, which had just essentially cost Palmer his job. And Hoover wants to only report to the attorney general. Is that pretty much how things played out? No, there's a big gap uh, in there, Dan. The thing you said at the end, when Hoover said that he had these demands to take the job, that's true. but. Palmer didn't lose his job because of political things. Palmer wanted to be nominated for the Democratic presidential election, for the 1920 presidential election. So he was out campaigning to see what kind of support he could get. He came back and found out he probably wasn't, wasn't going to get that nomination. So he backed the other Democrat, a guy by the name of James Cox, who ran against Harding. And so Palmer was still there 
until Harding was elected. And of course, as you know, every president appoints their own attorney general. So it wasn't like political. Well, it was political, but it wasn't. There was an election. You had a new president and uh, Harding was elected. So Harding appointed a guy by the name of Harry Doherty. And Doherty uh, was the attorney general then. And he still kept Hoover in the bureau. The Harding administration was probably the most corrupt administration until Watergate. The Teapot Dome scandal, at least five of Harding's appointees were sentenced to prison. Doherty was involved in all kinds of corruption. His detectives were corrupt. They used all kinds of methods to get money. They were selling parole. It was just amazing. And so now you had Harding. Harding dies. Coolidge becomes president. And Coolidge knew about all the corruption with the Department of Justice and Harding's people. The Teapot Dome was a mess. I think the Secretary of Navy went to prison as a result of that. Well, anyway, so Coolidge becomes president. Harlan Fish Stone and Kelvin Coolidge were classmates at Amherst University. They were good friends. And so Coolidge appoints Stone as attorney general. And there, that's when what you said at the end starts. And Hoover didn't lead those raids. That's a distortion as well. Hoover was a young, bright guy with a legal mind. He already had his law degree. And his position for those raids was he was the one that was supposed to, and did, I'm I'm not excusing him because he was responsible for a lot of that. But what his position was, is he was to develop the strategy behind the raids. And when they're talking about FBI arresting these people during the raids, they didn't have any power to arrest. So you had police and other agencies making the arrests. So then would Hoover's part of Hoover's role then be coordinating with the local law enforcement on the actual arrests? He wasn't actually isn't wasn't involved in any of the, those arrests. His was one of behind the desk strategy and making sure it was implemented. And that's when just prior to that is they formed the division within the Department of Justice called the Radical Division. And he became head of the radical division. But he basically was a strategy thinking implementation guy. Okay. Now, it was something that that we see in the movie that leads back to something you're talking about earlier is when we do see Hoover take the job, he starts to implement his own form of standards. We even see, I think there was an example of him firing an agent who had been with the Bureau for seven years because he had a mustache. (laughs) <laughs> I got the sense he's just started basically cleaning house of people that didn't fit his standards. I think the movie puts it as, you know, he had these standards of education, physical fitness, and loyalty. That's exactly right. I can agree with them on that. But my theory on the guy that he fired with the mustache wasn't because he had a mustache. The Hoover I knew would have given the guy a chance to shave his mustache off. And if he didn't shave, you wouldn't make it on the Hoover. I'm looking at you. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, what you're saying and what the movie said is right. He was looking for people with law degrees or accountants with experience, clean cut, no facial hairs. Loyalty was very important to him. But I think if I had to interpret that firing in the movie, 
I think it was probably because the guy said, Edgar, I've been in this organization seven years, just as much as you. And I think that's why. But by the way, only his personal friends and his mother called him Edgar. Did he prefer Mr. Hoover? He preferred, well, us in his office calling him Mr. Hoover. Like I said, he'd call me Mr. Latursky. But when we were talking about him or uh, making reference to him, I shouldn't say talking about him, we would refer to him as the director. That's the the title of my book, The Director. But that's that's how we all refer to him as the director, except for Helen Gandy. Miss Gandy would always, when she talked to me about something with him, she would always say Mr. Hoover. We're talking about some of the investigations, and there's a a big one that kind of goes throughout a lot of the movie. It cuts back and forth between, and that's the one with the kidnapping of Charles Lindbergh's infant son. I think uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's version of Hoover has a line of dialogue that says at the very beginning that, you know, that this is a start of an investigation that will forever change the Bureau. There are some ways that the movie shows that this changes the Bureau. And one of those big ones is uh, starting a centralized fingerprint system and also establishing the Bureau of Investigation's technical laboratory to analyze the letters that were written by the kidnappers. And then throughout the movie, we see flashes of investigation. It leads up to the conviction and a death sentence for Bruno Richard Hauptmann for that kidnapping. How well did the movie do showing the investigation of the Lindbergh kidnapping? I thought they did a pretty good job, Dan, because what they did show was that Charles Lindbergh didn't want the FBI involved. He never heard of Hoover. He had his own police, the New Jersey State Police and other investigators over there. and. He had no background about the Bureau of Investigation or J. Edgar Hoover himself. And he actually told J. Edgar Hoover that he didn't want him around. So at the start of the investigation, that's not what made the Bureau famous or got him. It was the end of the investigation when they were able to work together with the IRS to mark the bills for the ransom. So Hoover didn't pay attention to uh, Lindbergh not paying attention to him. He just he still went on because he felt that he could do a better job than the state police in New Jersey. And as it turned out, he did. So from that standpoint, the movie's pretty accurate. And the movie seems to imply that this, after that, as, as a result of that, it really changed the public's perception of the FBI. There was kind of this shift. They use movies as an example, like there's movies of gangsters glorifying them. And then it starts to shift to putting up law enforcement instead. They're the heroes instead of the gangsters being the heroes. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's pretty true. Because in the 1930s, we referred to it as the gangster era and bank robberies. See, in the the FBI, uh, the Bureau didn't have much jurisdiction over all of that. And it wasn't until the Lindbergh kidnapping that people started paying attention to the FBI. But uh, if my memory serves me correct, didn't they find the baby in 1932 or 1933? I know it was in the early 30s. I'd have to look up the exact year. <laughs> well, that's okay. My point is that it took two or three years of Hoover testifying before Congress to get more jurisdiction. And it wasn't until 1935, which was two or three years after the kidnapping, that Hoover talked the Congress into passing legislation to give the Bureau more powers of arrest, uh, more power, to give them powers of arrest, 
And it wasn't until 1935 that they were allowed to carry guns and use their guns. There was a bit of a gap between the kidnapping and how the FBI really changed to become. And that's when they became the FBI instead of Bureau of Investigation. It was 1935. And it was because of those congressional hearings and Hoover making a case. You were talking about the hearings, and I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, I couldn't help but but notice this as, you know, with the uh, concept of my podcast being based on a true story. There's a moment where uh, Hoover is testifying in front of Congress and Senator McKellar asks about the Bureau's advertising in radio shows and comic books. And and I think he actually quotes that uh, something, one of the advertisements says it's, quote, true reflections as contained in the official records based on actual case files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And of course, with the concept of my show, I had have to ask, <laughs> was that something that the FBI was involved in like early on? helping to create radio shows that were based on a true story? To quickly answer your question, yes. But it wasn't like they made paid advertisements. From the time that I was in the FBI and working for Hoover, like the FBI program in the 1960s and early 70s, it was called the FBI Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. I don't know if you ever saw it. Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. was Lieutenant Inspector Lou Erskine. And that show ran for nine years on TV. The show on TV would say, taken from the files of the FBI, right? That was a bit deceptive, but it was true. What our Crime Records Division, which is basically the public relations arm of the Bureau, they would take maybe six kidnapping cases and provide that information to the scriptwriters. The scriptwriters would then cherry-pick different parts of the six kidnappings, and then form a story for TV. So taken from the files of the FBI, yes, but it was a bit deceptive. It was the same with bank robberies. Here are six bank robberies, armed robberies, and they would do that. And my opinion is that this all started back when they did the radio stuff, because even back in the 1950s, it's when the Top Ten Fugitives program was founded, and that was because of Hoover talking to a head writer of the International Association, a press association or something. And he talked him into publishing this top 10 stuff. And so there was a lot of publicity for that as well. So uh, my point is, yes, this stuff went on, but Hoover didn't pay anybody to do it. It was kind of a bartering type of thing. You help us, we'll help you. And that's that they would make announcements of fugitives that we're looking for and that kind of stuff. They did have a junior G-Man badge that was well before my time because people at Simon & Schuster asked me if I had a junior G-Man badge. <laughs> and I told them I thought that's what my real badge looked like. <laughs> <laughs> you, don't need, you have the real one. You don't need that. As old as I am, even that was before my time. The weather's getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. 
access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earnin. Going back to something that we were talking about a little bit earlier with the with the, the mustache guy and how he treated that, but after the hearing in Congress in the movie, we see Hoover. He, he's super angry. McKellar had pushed Hoover to admit that he had never made an arrest. Yeah, he embarrassed him essentially, but. Outside of the courthouse, or I'm sorry, outside outside of Congress, there, uh, Hoover makes a decision to essentially fire or demote Agent Purvis, who was the one that had taken down John Dillinger. And I was watching this, I was like, well, I mean, I get that Hoover was embarrassed, but it seems like Agent Purvis did his job well, and the reward for that is going to be demoted or being fired. It almost gave the idea that Hoover was just vindictive with his agents. Is that is there any accuracy to that? At times, but I don't think that was the time. Hoover and Purvis had a personal, friendly relationship for years. They used to exchange letters about Helen Gandy because Helen Gandy, whenever Purvis would come in, she got a little Google-eyed about Purvis. And so Hoover used to tease Purvis about Maybe he's infatuated with Helen Gandy. And they went back and forth with several letters and everything. And they got a big kick out of it. They'd, they'd laugh about it. Gandy didn't know about those letters. <laughs> even though they had personal and confidential files, he didn't even let Gandy see those. Because in one of the letters, Hoover said to Purvis, picture her in a cellophane gown when you're going to the dance. <laughs> I can see why he didn't want her to see those letters. (laughs) So anyway, uh, what had happened was over time, Purvis started getting more and more publicity. And he was sort of making it look like uh, Purvis was running the FBI and not Hoover. So he was taking a lot of glory or glamour away from Hoover. And he was told by Hoover to cut it out. He didn't. And that's why he fired him. Okay. So, but he did give him a chance then. It wasn't like, I mean, the movie, it's like, go find him and, and, you know, fire him. (laughs) Right. And I I can't, I don't know what happened when that movie said they had four agents following the senator or the congressman. I don't know anything about that. I can't, I really can't offer you anything there. I don't know if it was true or not. We were talking about her earlier. Another aspect of the movie and really of, of Hoover's personality that we see in the movie um, is his relationship with his mother. He's super close with her. There's a, a, even a scene, it was after the, the hearing in Congress, where he tells his mother that he's not sure if he can trust anyone but her. Most of the movie, he's living at home with her. It gave me the impression that you know if he's the, the director but he's still living at home, then it has to be clearly by choice. I'm assuming he's not doing that because, you know, he can't afford his own place or anything like that. So 
they had to have had a super close relationship. How is the movie's representation of this relationship between Hoover and his mother? It's, it's so speculative, Dan, because who would know? Just Hoover and his mother. There was nobody else in the house to to verify any of those things of relationship between him and his mother. He was in the house with her for 43 years. He died and he went and got another house. And you're right. He certainly could afford to have his own house. Uh, when he started off as the director, uh, his salary was equivalent to today's $100,000. In his latter years, his salary was equivalent to $250,000 of, of today. So he had plenty of money to do what he wanted to do. But he didn't have that much money to live the lifestyle that he lived. Because he was given so much stuff by so many people, free rooms, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that background should help you understand him more. When I met Hoover, it was like 30 years after he moved out of his house, and he never talked to me about any aspect of the family. The only things I learned about his family were from Miss Gandy. And she would talk to Hoover's sister periodically, Lillian. Her name was Lillian Robinette. Uh, she was married to friend Robinette. But very, very seldom did Gandy say anything to me about Hoover's family, and Hoover never said anything. Now, I, I think, and this is my opinion, that Hoover's father, Hoover's had a brother who was 15 years older than him, so he never did anything with his brother. And his sister was even older than that. But his father became senile. I don't know if it was dementia or Alzheimer's or what have you. And so he ended up being institutionalized. And his mother was very ashamed of his father. You know, this was back in the day where people say, hey, that guy's crazy. You know, no, nobody really understood mental illnesses or anything. But she was very embarrassed and ashamed about her husband. And that's why she pushed Hoover to bring big light over that family, to offset the embarrassment she had from her husband. And of course, his brother was doing something else, you know, insignificant. So I, I think his father was the main reason for the mother treating him the way the relationships is, is portrayed. And I could see even just from a security standpoint, if you're the director, then you want to keep your personal life pretty private just from a security point of view too, I, I would imagine. I don't think he ever thought of it from a security standpoint. He just wanted his privacy. And uh, I mean, he wanted his privacy more than Tiger Woods wants his privacy. It, it, it kept pretty private. He was an interesting guy and we made sure. But he didn't carry a gun for security. He had the Bureau lab guys, the lab agents, install it security system in his home, but he would take walks in the neighborhood. I think he felt that he was bulletproof himself. The only thing that showed any aspect of security was the fact that he had an armored car that was driven for him. And I don't even think that was for security, Dan. I think it was just a symbolism of being a king. I don't think they showed much in the movie about that. This mother thing, though, was, uh, be honest with you, I danced with my mother. 
I never thought it was a problem dancing with my mother. You know, we go to weddings, I dance with my sisters. But the way they portrayed that scene. Yeah. Well, speaking of the relationships, there's another one. You, you mentioned him earlier, but that would be Clyde Tolson. And the way that the movie portrays that, it seems in a lot of those private moments, which granted, like you were saying, that we're not going to really know what goes on there at home. But we, I get very heavy implication from the movie that Hoover was struggling with his sexual orientation throughout the entire thing. And you're talking about dancing there. I remember the exact phrasing of what he said, but basically he said something along the lines of, you know, I don't like to dance, especially not with women. And then she flat out tells him that she'd rather have a dead son than a daffodil for a son. I don't know that that was said or happened. And there were rumors his whole career, ever since Clyde Tolson entered his life, about homosexuality. But he couldn't take the chance on in public being caught in some homosexual act. Uh, so I can't say he was, I can't say he wasn't, but I never, the only clues I had, Dan, was what everybody else, they saw he, he wasn't married. He didn't, he wasn't dating anybody. He spent all his free time and his working time with Clyde Tolson, who was a bachelor. So that could be, indicative, I guess, or you can be indicted for being a homosexual. But if that's the case, Helen Gandy didn't get married, so is she a lesbian? I, I did want to ask you about that, though, because the movie, at the very beginning, like the very first date, Hoover proposes to Helen Gandy. I mean, she refuses, like, I'm going to you know, be married to my job, and that, that kind of leads to her being his assistant. I guess throughout the rest of the movie, then, you know, Clyde Tolson enters and, and we see very clearly in the movie, there's this, you know, r relationship between between Clyde and, and Hoover. And then there's Helen Gandy. How was their interactions together from your perspective? Like they you were saying that they clearly knew a lot of things that perhaps other people may not have about Hoover. Well, because they were with him every day. And I honestly believe that both of them loved Hoover, but not Gandhi didn't love him in a romantic way. She just she defended him till after his dying day when she had to testify in Congress about the secret files. And she said she did destroy the files, but under Hoover's instruction, but there was nothing secret about him. She says, I knew about him. Clyde Tolson knew about him. And one of the freshman congressmen said, Miss Gandy, I find a hard time believing you. She says, well, you have that choice. And she was in her late 70s testifying in Congress that way. That's such a great response. <laughs> she was a, a great lady. And uh, I, I have in my book referring to her as the most powerful woman in the U.S. government in the 20th century, 50 years where she was, she ran the bureau as much as Hoover did, maybe in some cases more so. So she was really a powerful lady. You know, nobody knows anything about her, but I spent every day doing something with her. And uh, she used to come into work on Saturdays to check them if there was any mail that had to be sent to Hoover's house, get the a bureau messenger to take it there. And Hoover went to the racetrack with Clyde Tolson every Saturday. When he loved the races. A short period of time after I was there, she felt such loyalty with me. She asked Hoover if I could sit at her desk on Saturdays so that she could have 
a little time for a few excesses. I don't know why he approved, but he did, because he, he really guarded the stuff that I want across Miss Gandy's desk. So I sat her at her desk and did the same thing on Saturdays. She would come in about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. She'd go to a salon, a hair salon, and she'd come in about 2 o'clock. I brown-bagged it, made a sandwich for her as well as for me, and uh, I complimented her hair every Saturday, and it never changed. Her style never changed, but she loved me complimenting it. But that's the relationship I had with her. So she shared a lot of things with me, both personal and bureau-wise. And that's where a lot of my knowledge comes from as to what happens coming from her. So you said she, she, not a lot of people knew about her. Was that by her choice? Some people just preferred to be more in the shadows. I got the sense from, at least from the movie, that Hoover wanted some of that glory and uh, did Miss Gandy prefer to work in the shadows more behind the scenes? Yeah, she did. And she did a good job. And Hoover wouldn't. Hoover would not have been Hoover, but for Ellen Gandy, she was really behind the scenes. Someone should make a movie about her, but they probably couldn't come up with enough information. Be even more speculative. <laughs> yeah, well, I tell you, she was the highest-paid female employee in the entire Department of Justice, and they had forty thousand women in the Department of Justice, and she was the highest-paid. When I met her, when I first came there, she was sixty-nine years old. And there was mandatory retirement at the age of 70 back then. Hoover got an exemption from President Johnson because Hoover turned 70 the same year I entered the Bureau. And I entered when I was 22, and he turned 70. And Johnson sent an executive order exempting him from the Retirement Act. And with a very famous quote that Johnson had, he said, I'd rather have him inside the tent pissing out than outside the tent pissing in. And so he gave him an exemption. And then Hoover was able to give Gandy and Tolson exemptions when they turned uh, 70, because the law said if the person is essential to the government, so Hoover declared them essential. That's kind of a side thing, but I think it's important to note. How was Hoover's relationship with some of the presidents? Because we, we see throughout the movie, that I think there's, there's a scene where the phone rings and he's like, oh, that child Kennedy is, is calling again or something like that, you know, and kind of get the sense that he has no problem butting heads with the president, even though it's the president. <laughs> the only president that I'm aware of that he had a problem with was Harry Truman. And Tr Truman was afraid to fire him because of the reputation Hoover had already developed. He had a tremendous relationship with Nixon until the very end. Because Nixon was the big fighter against communism in, this, in the Senate at the time. And that was Hoover's passion was fighting communism. And that was Walter Winchell's passion, too. And you're going back to the comic books and the advertising. Hoover and Walter Winchell exchanged information. Walter Winchell would give them information about certain people. That would go in the files, in the secret files. And Hoover would drop a few nuggets about certain oh. investigations. So that, another, that was another of the bargaining chips that went on at the time. There are some ways that the movie depicts Hoover using the law that I, I, I would see as being kind of controversial. You, you're talking about how the, they weren't allowed to use guns. But in the very beginning, Hoover 
gives some of his agent guns and says, oh, they're they're gifts from me to you. And there's nothing, there's no law saying preventing you from using your own weapons. And now I'm giving you these gifts. Uh, there were the advertisements we kind of talked about. There's a, a later on, it, it does talk about um, Hoover trying to essentially uh, blackmail uh, MLK for to not accept the Nobel Peace Prize. So I got the sense throughout in these different examples that the movie shows that Hoover was very good at adhering to the letter of the law, but maybe kind of bent around the spirit of the law in order to get some of the results that he wanted. Would that be a fair assessment of what he was like? Yeah, I think so. But the examples given aren't good. But he would skirt the law. A lot of things weren't illegal, but they weren't legal either. You know, he just would skirt the to get it done. But in most cases, Dan, it was that because the president told him to do something and the president would always use national security, quote, unquote, national security, even if it wasn't. But he, the pres- if the president tells him you have to do this because of national security, he doesn't have much choice. And so he would he really would skirt the law. But in the movie. I'm not sure those are good examples. Probably the best example is when he formed the what we call the COINTELPRO, it's counterintelligence program. And I was part of that, but it started way before me. It started like in 1953 or 1956. And basically it was an infiltration of the Communist Party, the USA Party of the Communists. Uh, it was used against the Ku Klux Klan, and it was an infiltration, and we would get informants inside those organizations and then tell other people in the organization that this guy's an FBI spy, but we'd tell them, we'd have somebody else tell them. Things. And so in the Ku Klux Klan, probably one of five members was a, a spy for the FBI because we paid them as well, and then they became afraid to talk to each other because everybody thought everybody else was spying on them. And we did this and we did the same thing during my career, only directed to the uh, new left radical organizations like the Weathermen, you know, violent organizations that were opposing uh, the Vietnam War. I mean, that era was it's before your time, but it was a horror. That era, the 60s and 70s are probably the worst time in U.S. history other than the Civil War. As fires, bombings, hijackings, it's just about every, but the bombings and the burnings and the riots and the looting, it was just horrible. But we would use the counterintelligence program to skirt the law. Black bag jobs, we'd be breaking into apartments and houses without a warrant to get information up, even knowing that we couldn't use that information as evidence in court. It'd be thrown out, but we used it to get leads. One of the things I did when I was based in Cincinnati, they had me go into the colleges and universities as a junior political science major. I, I was young and looked younger than I was, and so I could blend in with the college students. And one of the things I did was organize a bus trip for the Cincinnati local colleges to go to Columbus, Ohio, where Ohio State is for a rally of the Students for Democratic Society. And I had a bus and everything, and there was no rally. But these kids were put on the bus, they paid money, they went to 
And when they got to Columbus, they were greeted by FBI agents. All right, what's your name? You're dressed. Does your parents know you're doing this? <laughs> so it's just, and Hoover said to us, we want these kids to think there's an FBI agent behind every mailbox. At the time, Dan, I drank the Kool-Aid, I have to admit, because I thought I was doing the right thing. But who was I to say what the law is, that I can violate the law, but you can't? But at the time, those were the I wouldn't do it today, but we did violate the law. And some of the guys later got indicted uh, that were involved in uh, doing those black bag jobs uh, against the weathermen, the underground weather group. On the flip side of that, something that uh, another sense that I got from throughout the movie was that Hoover was, uh, simply put, a brilliant innovator. He knew that the standards at the time, at least the way the movie portrays it, weren't up to the task. So he started to turn to science. We talked about, you know, a little bit earlier with the Lindbergh kidnapping, you know, fingerprints and and handwriting, things like that. But those are just a a few examples that we see in the movie. And as I was, when I was done watching the movie, I just came out with it with the sense that Hoover basically led criminal justice into a new science driven era that it wasn't necessarily in before. Is that true? It's true. He had a hard time convincing people. But he did it. He was a pretty stubborn guy when it came when he felt that he was right. And it all started when he went to work for the Library of Congress when he got out of college. Oh, that system there they showed that in the movie. Like he like he organized all of that. I think he was showing that to Miss Gandy. Well <laughs> Yeah, Miss Gandy wasn't there. But he he worked on the card catalog system and he brought that system to the FBI. And that's how our all our Criminal files and domestic intelligence files are based on that same card system that he helped put together at the Library of Congress. So when you're talking about being innovative, that was one thing as well as the fingerprints. Fingerprints were scattered all over the place. But when I when I arrived in 1965, I think they had over 200 million fingerprints on file. And it was all said they had an entire building. I think it was C Street in Washington, you know, several blocks away from Bureau Headquarters. Bureau Headquarters at the time was in uh, in the Justice Building. They didn't build a J. Hoover building until 1973, I guess, 72 or 73. Well, anyway, the innovation, he testified in front of the House Committee on Appropriations every year to get money, talking about the budget. And he always had uh, stuff for innovation in the budget for science and helping to build a laboratory and all this kind of stuff. And the person that put the budget together mostly was Clyde Tolson. That was Tolson's role was sitting next to him saying, you know, in Congress, if they ask him a question about the budget, Tolson knew all about it. In all his years and every year testifying to the Appropriations Committee, they never refused. And they gave more money year after year after year. And the way he got that money were statistics. He would say, you gave us this much money, this is much how we we return to the government in fines, savings, and recoveries. And we were statistically, as an agent, you were responsible for statistics. And you, you could make so many statistics by stolen cars because local police didn't want to deal with stolen cars. But when I was in Cincinnati, Kentucky was over the Ohio River, and we'd have stolen vehicles back and forth. 
and we would claim those stolen vehicles and give the blue, not the blue book price, but a significant increase in price. So he used those statistics. Statistics to him were like a drunk leaning up a uh, lamppost for support, not illumination. (laughs) That's seriously that those statistics. So he was never denied his budget request his entire tenure as uh, head of the bureau. I don't remember the exact uh, words, but I think I remember there's a scene in the movie where he he talks about how much money that they brought in from fines and stuff like that. And he makes the joke that, oh, we're the only department in the government that's actually pulling a profit, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> but, you know, that's true, Dan. He put those statistics together and we, we got hammered out in the field to make sure, put that value on that. One case I was involved in was a hijacking of a tractor trailer, 18-wheeler that was filled with aspirin. And uh, crooks would sell the aspirin on a black market to different pharmaceutical, you know, CVS or whatever, and they'd make a fortune. But we estimated that truckload, and this was 1969, we estimated that truckload of aspirin to be worth $100,000 to the thieves. That's a lot of aspirin. Yeah. Everything you can imagine that was stolen from interstate transportation, stolen property, stealing trucks, entire tractor trailers. And I was involved in a lot of those cases. But going back to the whole point, it was a comical thing saying we're the only agency that makes a profit for the government. That's kind of true in a way, just like some of the illegal things were legal in some way. That's politics, Dan. The things that I knew about him, if I could just put one handle on him, was he was a professional political poker player. He knew how to play political poker. I mention a lot of that in my book, a lot of the things that he did that were so precise. I know I'm off guard again, but this is kind of an interesting story. I would have to prepare make his appointments by phone, and then prepare a note for him, put it on his desk on top of the background material I would get from the Crime Records Division, put it on the right side of his desk, and then put a paperweight on top of it. Now, this paperweight uh, was a plastic paperweight, and it was embedded with a coin that had a donkey on one side. You flip over the uh, paperweight, and it had an elephant on the other side. And so if the first visitor came in and was a Democrat, that donkey should have been showing, or I'd have my ass in a sling. And if the next one's a Republican, I have to go in and turn the paperweight over. But that's how precise he was, just to give you some idea what it was like in our office. Wow. Yeah, that's that's a level of detail that is just fascinating. <laughs> you mentioned earlier the confidential files. And at the very end of the movie, we do see Miss Gandy shredding those after Hoover dies. but. You also mentioned Nixon having a good relationship with Hoover, and we don't really see a lot of Nixon in the movie, but we see at the at the end, it seems like, I don't remember the exact phrasing, but basically that Hoover believes that Nixon's going to come for him and because Nixon knows about the files. And so that is why in the movie, Hoover has Gandhi get rid of the files if anything happens to him. And then, of course, we see that you know he, he passes away and immediately... Two things happen. One, Miss Candy starts shredding the, the documents as soon as she finds out about Hoover's death. 
And also, as soon as Nixon finds out about it, he sends people to go try to get those files. How well did the movie do showing the end of Hoover's life and what happened in the wake of his death? Horrible to include those files in Nixon and Hoover's death itself. It was just so absolutely wrong. Hoover told Gandhi to destroy his personal files and the files. The files were never kept in Hoover's office, in his inner office. They were kept in uh, in a basement. They were kept in Gandhi's office, the most secret. When Hoover died, Nixon, it was an election year. He was running against Goldwater. And what had happened was during the campaign, the United States were bombing Cambodia. We weren't supposed to do that. But John Dean and Kissinger, they convinced Nixon that a lot of weaponry, bombs and everything, were hidden in Cambodia. And so, blah, 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 had the planes. I I think there was like 3,600 bombing grains of Cambodia, and it leaked out. Because it leaked out, Nixon was sort of uh, paranoid, you know, uh, and John Dean told him what we have to do is incorporate all the intelligence agencies under one intelligence agency and have only one guy lead all intelligence agencies. And so Nixon hired a guy, he took him out of the military, worked in a Pentagon. He was a 28-year-old right-wing lawyer, guy by the name of Houston. And it was called the Houston Plan. He wrote this plan up and Nixon wanted Hoover to chair this plan to put this together to incorporate all these uh, uh, intelligence agencies. Hoover refused. Hoover knew. Hoover knew that if he was chairman, as soon as that plan was made, everybody else would leave and he'd be stuck with that on his shoulders. And he knew for sure that all of that stuff that they're doing, which was similar to the counterintelligence program, only worse with what they were advocating. So Hoover said he wouldn't do it. Then the attorney general tried to convince him into doing it. And Hoover said, okay, I'll do it, but only if President Nixon signs off on it in writing and you also sign off in writing. Well, Nixon said, forget about it. So what Nixon did, and, and this is kind of interesting, because Hoover refused this, because he, you should see this program, you know, talk about black bag jobs and violating constitutional rights. But what you know what he did and said? Put together an investigative unit that became known as the plumbers, the ones that broke into Watergate. And then some of the people were blaming Hoover for Watergate. Hoover was dead for a year before Watergate, and they were still blaming him because they said if he would have agreed to Nixon's plan, the FBI are experienced in breaking into offices and <laughs> taking things, and they would have never gotten caught. I mean, that's a true story. Unfortunately, a lot of people uh, will probably determine who Hoover was based on this movie because, you know, being a biopic, it's it's telling a lot of that there. So as, as someone who got to work with him and, and knew him, what's something that you wish people knew about him that they wouldn't get walking away from the movie? A, a different perspective of who he was as a person, the fact that he was a human being, 
the fact that he was really dedicated. And I noticed uh, you had one of your questions. You identified him as a, a workaholic. Uh, he was. His valet would fill a large. It would be a large briefcase or a small suitcase full of memos and paperwork that he would take home every night. And the next morning, there were notations over every one of those memos and little things. Okay, H, do this. I'm not sure we should be doing that. But every morning, he'd come in and he'd have the stack of papers with comments on that he that he moved on at night. But let me go back to uh, the question you had on the files and Nixon sending people in. He didn't send anybody. That picture of guys opening drawers and everything never happened. What happened was L. Patrick Gray was appointed acting director right after Hoover died. And he told Gray to go to Hoover's office and get the files. And uh, Gray told J.P. Moore, who was the number three man in the bureau, and he was sort of my mentor. J.P. was supposed to do the funeral and everything. And when L. Patrick Gray came, J.P. Moore said, well, my instructions were to change the locks on Hoover's door. So he did on Hoover's office, but not on the whole suite. And Patrick Gray kept asking him, where are the files? Moore would say, what files? And the guy would say, the secret files. And Moore would say, I don't know of any secret files because I saw, I'd read a lot of files that came to Hoover's, past Hoover's desk. So I don't think it was a secret if I knew about it. I mean, they went into this back and forth with L. Patrick Gray. So they never went, you know, and then Gandhi took a lot of these files home with her and was destroying them at home. It wasn't like like that in a movie. And no agents or people from the White House came to the office to open up files and looking for them. That never happened. As a matter of fact, I, I went to the to Hoover's funeral. Gandhi asked me to go to the funeral, to kind of escort her to the funeral. And she wanted me to sit between her and Clyde Tolson, which I did, because she hated Clyde Tolson. She didn't want to sit with him even at the funeral. So I had a chance to chat about with Gandhi about a lot of these things when we were in the car being driven to the funeral. <laughs> and uh, I asked her about the files. I said, do you need help with the files? She looked at me, and all she said was, J.P. Moore. I knew it was time for me to stop. I was an agent at the time, and so I knew she and J.P. Moore were going to take care of those files. But this was in the limo going to the funeral. And it was interesting to be with her and ask her certain questions. And one that I think you'll find amusing is I said to her, now this is Hoover just died a day or two before the funeral. And I said to her, Miss Gandy, what are you going to do now? She looked at me and she says, I'm going to get my Christmas cards out on time. She always wrote cards for him and a lot of them. And I got Christmas cards from her. Every time I got a Christmas card from her, it was dated after December 25th. To be going to this solemn occasion, a funeral, what are you going to do now, Miss Gandy? I'm going to get my Christmas card. This was May. I'm going to get my Christmas cards out on time. But that's the kind, that's how our relationship was. Yeah, the movie it depicts it as like it, you almost you it cuts between the agents coming in and then you see Miss Gandy shredding the files and you just expect the agents to burst through the door at any time. You know, 
that type of will they, won't they get to the files before she's able to shred them all. The closest anything came was L. Patrick Ray trying to get into the office and arguing with J.P. Moore. And uh, he came in one more time and asked Miss Gandy if he knew she was destroying files because she told him that Hoover, these personal comments, and he, he said, well, can I see the files? And she showed him some of the personal stuff. And he just kind of nodded his head and left. And he told Nixon that he saw the files and there's no problem. But he was such a puppet himself with Nixon that he only lasted a year. And the reason he only lasted a year is because uh, John Dean, who was the White House counsel at the time, had all these Watergate documents that E. Howard Hunt, E. Howard Hunt and G. Gordon Liddy were the heads of the plumbers breaking in. And John Dean uh, went into Hunt's safe and got all these documents and told Gray to destroy them. And those were the documents from Watergate. At the time, I was an agent in the Alexandria field office. And part of my responsibility was Washington National Airport and Dulles International Airport. Those two airports at the time were owned by the federal government. So every crime on those airports fell under the statute of crime on a government reservation. So I had a lot of jurisdictions. And I got a call one time, one day, from the director's office when Gray was the director. And they asked me if I could arrange for Gray to be driven on the tarmac at National Airport, driven up to the airplane, and before any other passengers would be allowed to board the airplane. It was a flight to New London, Connecticut, where he lived, where his family was. And what happened was he had those documents. And he, didn't want to, he didn't want to go through any type of screening or anybody looking at anything. And I found it strange that I didn't get that request for his return flight. So I had, a pretty, I had a pretty good feeling at the time. Well, anyway, he confided in uh, this Kentucky, can't think of the senator's name, who was a friend of his, and he confided in him. And, of course, the politicians, the senator, leaked all that information out to the press. And Patrick Ray had to resign because of that. So he didn't have a full year in. But these are politics. These are the things that make Washington, Washington. Yeah, it helps put a lot more context around what was what was going on and and some of the things that were going on there that they had, you know, the, the waters that they had to navigate there. You had mentioned early on that there were a lot of distortions in in the movie. Is there anything we haven't talked about that would be a major inaccuracy that you wanted to address? One was Hoover's death and discovery. Tolson never went over his house. The the movie shows Tolson going up the stairs and Hoover lying on the floor, just with his pajama bottoms, that didn't happen. Jimmy Crawford, who was Hoover's chauffeur, and he was also like Hoover's handyman at home. He planted the roses and took care of the property. And Annie Fields was his live-in maid. And I knew them very well because I had to deal with even prob- Hoover's problems at home. Not serious problems, you know, like the stereo is not working, send somebody over to, to fix it. Well, anyway, Jimmy Crawford had a brain aneurysm when I was in Quantico and FBI training. So last time I saw him, he was still Hoover's driver, but he couldn't drive anymore. And so he had his 
brother-in-law, uh, Jim Moulton, drive for Hoover. And Moulton and Jimmy Crawford were over Hoover's house that morning. And Hoover was never late for anything. Uh, and he would always have breakfast at 7.30 in the morning, and Annie would have everything ready right on the spot. And he didn't come down. So Annie got worried, and so Jimmy and Moten went up to his room, found him on the floor like the movie saw him on the floor, but they picked him up and put pajama tops on him and put him in bed. Tolson was never there. I mean, to me, that was one of the biggest inaccuracies you know, Tolson crying and putting a blanket. That was that was all made up. Jimmy Crawford and Moulton are the ones that found him. And Annie called uh, Miss Gandy right away, and then the wheels went in motion. So that's how that happened. And to me, that was the biggest inaccuracy in the movie. Although you could argue about all the times Miss Gandy's calling Hoover Edgar and Hoover calling her Miss Gandy or Helen. He, he, he wouldn't call her Helen. We had one incident that I witnessed with her during these terrible times and riots. This was after Martin Luther King was assassinated. And the Justice Building, or at least the fifth floor, looked down Pennsylvania Avenue towards, towards the Capitol. And to the right, you could see the National Archives Building. Gandhi, I was with uh, uh, Irma Metcalf in Gandhi's office. Irma was Gandhi's assistant, and she panicked. She says, there's a sniper on the roof of the archives. She goes into Hoover's inner office with her hands up in front of the window, guarding him in case he's going to, she was going to take a bullet for him. <laughs> Mr. Hoover, there's a sniper on the archives roof. And he was doing some work with some memos. He looked up at her and he says, there's no sniper woman. Go back to work. Never saw her cry until then. And we had to comfort her. Uh, she was just so upset. Go back to work, woman. There's no sniper up there. He never hardly picked up his head. But I'm thinking, she's ready to take a bullet for this guy. I talked to her about that. And she said to me, when you do the same thing, I told her no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I says i'm loyal to a certain point but not as loyal as you are well i really appreciate your time coming on to chat about the movie j edgar i know you have a brand new book that's coming out today you're listening to this on the day it's released called the director my years assisting j edgar hoover so for someone listening to this who wants to learn more about hoover and pick up a copy of your book can you give them an overview of it yeah uh I want to make it perfectly clear that it's not another Hoover biography. There are so many of those, uh, Dan, that if someone thinks it's another Hoover biography, why buy it? It's a book of how Hoover was known to me. And a lot of the inside information that was never told before, some of the quirky things that happened in the office, some of the more significant things that happened in the office. I'm the one that called him at home to tell him Martin Luther King was shot. And his response was pretty shocking. And I'm going to wait till the book comes out so people will say. Um, there are other things in there that show the idiosyncrasies, habits inside the sanctum of his. And a lot of interesting stories that I, I rewrote some history because I was writing the truth about history. Had to do with Attorney General Ramsey Clark, his father, 
Thurgood Marshall. I defend Hoover when people call him racist. He was far from a racist. There was just so many things in the office that I saw that would show that he's not. And and I think the point is that there's never been a person that worked for him on his personal staff that ever wrote a book. So there's going to be there's a lot of new things in in this book that no one's heard of before. And then there's a section of the book, almost the second half, that are true crimes that I was involved in and gained national attention. They held national headlines for a long time in these true crime stories. So it's a combination of how I knew Hoover, how he was known to me, little anecdotes and stories from within his office that were never told before, and then a section on true crimes that I was involved in. So buy the book. That's great. I'll make sure to add a link to where people can get a copy in the show notes for this episode. Thank you again so much for your time, Paul. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for asking us to uh, chat about this. It's nice to be able to kind of get this off of my chest instead of just in the book. I don't have a problem having questions asked about any aspect of it. I have nothing but the truth and everything to share. But I'd like people to know the truth about some of these historic events that have been reported as a little different. This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan LeFeb. I'd like to thank Paul Letursky once again for taking the time to help us separate fact from fiction in 2011's J. Edgar. Now, if you want even more inside stories from Paul, make sure to go get his brand new book called The Director, My Years Assisting J. Edgar Hoover. You can find links to his book in the show notes for this episode, as well as on the show's home on the web, based on a true story podcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, Clyde Tolson found Hoover on the floor of his home soon after his death. Number two, the eight bombs we see go off in D.C. at the beginning of the movie actually went off in seven different cities. Number three, Hoover really did live with his mother for 43 years. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's count it backwards and start with number three. Hoover really did live with his mother for 43 years. That is true. As Paul pointed out, even though Hoover was earning what is equivalent to a six-figure salary in today's dollar as a director, he chose to live at home with his mother. So a lot of those scenes that we see in the movie where he's at home alone with her, that's all going to be speculation. The truth is we just don't know what happened during those times when it was just Hoover and his mother there at home. That brings us to number two. The eight bombs we see go off in D.C. at the beginning of the movie actually went off in seven different cities. That is also true. Even though the movie shows all the bombs going off in D.C., as Paul explained, they actually went off in seven different cities, including one of them hitting at the heart of capitalism on Wall Street. That means the lie is number three. Clyde Tolson found Hoover on the floor of his home soon after his death. What really happened was, when Hoover didn't come down for breakfast, as he did every morning, Hoover's live-in maid, Annie Fields, got worried. So it was Jimmy Crawford and Jim Moulton who went up and found Hoover on the floor. Clyde Tolson was not there at all. 
that just about wraps up our time together today. Before we go, the last thing I like to do on each episode is to share how much time and effort went into creating this episode. My hope in sharing this information is to go beyond just my podcast, but hopefully you'll start to appreciate all the podcasts that you listen to for free just a little bit more. Of course, I only have the stats for my own show. So with that said, today's episode took a total of 38 hours to create. And as I always do, I want to make it clear that is only my time for this one episode. In other words, that 38 hours obviously does not include any of my guest time as he worked for the FBI for years and writing the book that we talked about. Now, it also doesn't include the time that it takes for me to do podcast-related things that are not part of creating this one episode. For example, the time it takes to maintain the Based on a True Story website, do social media, the email newsletter, and all those other little things outside creating a single podcast episode that are still required to make a podcast overall. All those things take time to set up and maintain, and they cost money that go beyond the things that are associated with this one episode, but they are all things that are required because if I didn't do them, there really wouldn't be any episodes of Based on a True Story at all. In a nutshell, this podcast may be free to listen to, but it is not free to create. And that's why I'm so thankful for the sponsors whose ads you've heard in this episode. You can find out more information about them over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash advertisers. But they're not the only ones helping to keep the show alive. There are wonderful people just like you who are helping to keep this show going financially. So if you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll consider helping to support the next episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. And as a bonus, you'll get access to the producer's feed, which as of this recording has over 70 exclusive minisodes, as well as ad-free versions of the regular episodes like this one. You can find out how to get access to all of that by supporting the show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. And I'll chat with you again really soon.